And please continue standing in honor of God's word as I read it. This is John chapter five, verse 31. It's up there, please follow with me. Jesus is speaking. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears testimony about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Thanks be to God for his word. Now please be seated. Three witnesses show that Jesus is Lord and God is the one speaking through them. So to reject these three is to reject God. So as we track along today and visit these three witnesses, consider for yourself, who are they? Do they bear weight in your life? What further evidences do you need to see that Jesus is Lord? Miracles, science, words from someone you deeply trust, And how do you respond to Jesus after hearing these three witnesses' testimony about him? In this passage, the context is that Jesus is being accused by the Jews of breaking their law, the law about Sabbath, and more than that, claiming to be God by saying that the God the Jews know from the Old Testament is his father. And because the Jews are accusing him, Jesus shows that God has spoken about him about him through their very Old Testament, through the word that they say they know. Look with me at verse 
31. If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that his testimony that he bears is true. Jesus is saying, I know you don't trust me. Uh, You just see me as another man. So then why don't you listen to your God? He has testified to me. And you say that he is true, so listen to him. And God has given his testimony. He has spoken through three witnesses that clearly and really irrefutably show that Jesus is Lord. Number one, the first witness, John the Baptist, the one the Jews even respect as a prophet. Number two, Jesus' own actions, which are exactly God's actions. And third, Moses, the writer of the first five books of their Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures who the Jews know so well. So three witnesses track with us today as we visit their testimony and consider, do their words bear weight in your life? So this passage is like a courtroom scene where Jesus is being accused of breaking the law. And so he calls up this first witness, John the Baptist. You, the Jews, in the passage, sent to, meaning asked, questions to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Jesus again says, if you don't listen to me, at least listen to John, who you see as a prophet. So John the Baptist stood in the line of great Jewish prophets like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, Malachi, the Old Testament prophets who for the Jews were key pillars of their history and their identity. And the heart of their message, the message of the prophets was the same. It was one, a plea to return to God to turn from evil and dirty ways of living, sinful ways, to the pure God, from worshiping false gods and hurting each other, to loving God and each other. And John the Baptist's message was the same. And he spoke not only through words, not only through his verbal message, but through baptism. Baptism, his trademark. Think about it, imagine for me a moment Baptism, entering water, taking with you the dirt of the day and coming out washed and clean. It's a visual symbol of turning away from that past and dirt-filled life to a new life, a new life of purity. It is a symbol of turning from dirt to purity in the heart. So John's message was that of the prophets and he also looked like a prophet. He was the one predicted by Isaiah to be crying out in the wilderness. And exactly like Elijah, John too came out of the wilderness and with a message like Elijah's. And wilderness, again, picture with me the wilderness. It is a further symbol of purity, being away from the world, the world and its stuff, to focus on God to look up to God and not fixate on the world. So John the Baptist, he talked like a prophet, his message, and he walked, he appeared as a prophet. And the Jews knew that he was a prophet. They saw his authority and so they respected him. They rejoiced even at his coming, especially because for 200 years, no prophet had visited the Jews. 
Look at verse 35 with me. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John was a light, a light that pointed somewhere, a light that pointed to Christ. You see, the prophets before John said, Israel, your Christ, your Savior will come. God will deal with your sin and deal with it with the finality. He'll wash it to be white as snow. And now John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is the great and final prophet in the line of great Jewish prophets who gathers the threads of all who came before him to say, Israel, your savior has come. And he was impossible to refute. His authority was so clear. Yet if the Jews respected John and saw something of his authority, why did they then reject Jesus, the one to whom John pointed? Hold that question in mind because we'll answer it. For now, Jesus calls up the second witness the second source of testimony, and it is his own actions, his works. Verse 34, then 36. Now, not that the testimony that I have is from man, like John, but I say these things so that you may be saved. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says, John is just a man, I don't need his testimony, I have a clearer one. And you really can't reject this evidence. Look at my works, my actions. Aren't they the same shape, the same contour, the same power and character as God's? The actions and works of God you've known since your upbringing from your Old Testament. You see, earlier in this chapter, chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man paralyzed man who's been disabled for 38 years. So he was crippled, laying on the ground for 38 years, which is a thousand days and a thousand nights of bearing the dust of all who walked past him, of no independence, of no respect. And Jesus goes to that man and says, get up, take your bed, and walk. And he walks. This power must be power from God. Must be power from heaven. You see, the Jews heard from the scriptures growing up about how Moses healed Miriam, how Elisha healed even a a Gentile, a non-Jew, Naaman, and it goes on. Now in Jesus, a greater healer than Moses has come, greater than Elisha, a healer with power, more direct, more intimate, closer to the one God, because God wants to show that Jesus comes from him. And that Jesus' healing points to a greater restoration that's come. Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to restore the world. He's come to heal the world, which is really about dealing with the world's sin, with your sin, with my sin. And by giving this paralyzed man the power to walk again, he's pointing to that restoration. Yet the Jews respond in anger. They don't rejoice at the healing of this man, one of their very own people. 
They get angry. And it's perplexing, isn't it? They've just seen this man who for 38 years was laying on the ground, now upright, and they get angry, not delighted. Why is that? Isn't that so heartless? Isn't that so distracted and missing the point? Well, they get angry at Jesus because he healed on their Sabbath day. And because he healed, they deemed him to be doing a work and breaking their law. So you would have heard about Sabbath in recent sermons, but I'm going to remind us again about that context. So we're going to unpack Sabbath a bit. Uh, So on the outside, it is resting on that seventh day, not working. It's in the Ten Commandments. God told the Jews, after he rescued them out of Egypt, to keep the seventh day pure, to be free of the distractions of work, and to remember their God who rescued them out of Egypt. And yet the Jews in Jesus' day missed the point about Sabbath. They turned this day about rest into a day about work. What work, you might ask? Weren't they so meticulously pure on the outside? Work, not on the outside, of course, not laboring, but on the inside, inside their hearts. Working to own and earn their own sense of righteousness, their own sense of, oh, aren't I so good? Like earning a personal spiritual salary by their own efforts, by showing others how perfectly and pure they could keep the Sabbath. And keep it better than you. If your donkey falls into a pit, you shouldn't rescue it. I wouldn't rescue it. And this is really a work in the heart that is so opposite to what God wants. You see, Sabbath is God saying, don't work on the seventh day, at least for one day in a week, don't work. Don't have your eyes fixed on your own reward and your own efforts. But look at me and my work, that I've already saved you and rescued you out of Egypt, that I've already loved you. And on that basis, be my people, not your own self-righteousness. The Jews in Jesus' day were not looking upward toward God, but they were looking sideways to each other for that outward purity praise. They wanted their own sense of righteousness and worth based on each other's praise. Verse 44, you receive glory from one another and do not seek God and his glory. The Jews condemned the paralyzed man as well for picking up that bed he was resting on after he was healed. They deemed that work also. Isn't that so ridiculous, so unkind, and such a tiring way to live? What a poisoned example of that intense craving for human glory glory and righteousness based on one's own efforts. And so Jesus heals this man on their Sabbath, not only to reflect and demonstrate God's intention to restore the world, but to show the Jews that they are so wrong about Sabbath and they've warped God's law and the true concepts of purity, which is a purity in the heart, turning away from dirt in the heart, not this outward false purity, And so Jesus gets angry at them. See if you can hear it in his voice. His voice, the Father's voice, you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Jews grew up memorizing the Old Testament, particularly Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. They were really the foundation of the Jewish society, their way of life. And so now Jesus is raising this third witness, Moses, to testify to him. Take this metaphor. Uh, if everything Moses wrote, every law, every event, like the parting of the Red Sea, laws about loving your parents, loving each other, etc., if each of these items in Moses were like a piece of glass, a piece of colored glass, they would all coalesce, come together to form a beautiful stained glass image, like one of those, or in the main Scots building, that showed Jesus. That showed Jesus. You see, Moses' writings point to Jesus. So if they understood Moses rightly, they would see that this man who's come in the flesh is indeed that Savior who God has intended and shown since Moses. And so we see John, our gospel writer, John the evangelist, is so deeply steeped in Moses and he sees how Moses all points to Jesus. Take Moses' first book, Genesis, chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. All things were made through Christ. Book number two, Exodus, the tabernacle, the tent in which God dwelt with the Jews in the wilderness wanderings. In John chapter one, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt, which in the original Greek is tabernacled, a visual verb, dwelt among us in the flesh. And Christ has come to rescue the world out of a greater slavery than that of Egypt. He has given us an exodus out of a greater darkness, that of sin, sin that leads to judgment. Number three, Leviticus. I mean, I can really go on all day. This is like, there's so much richness in every book. I'm just taking a sample from each book. Well, it's about sacrificing animals. And now Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes, away, uh, comes to take away the sin of the world. Numbers, bread and water in the wilderness. Jesus, the bread of life the water that springs eternal life, Deuteronomy, Moses repeating the law again to the Jews so that they would remember it's about obedience from the heart. And Jesus perfectly obeys the Father. Verse 30, before our reading today, Jesus says, I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. So the Old Testament law, Moses' writings, make a stained glass window of Jesus. Yet now Jesus has come in the flesh, but the Jews don't recognize him, which really show how they've warped Moses' words. It's as if they've farmed, collected these shards of glass and cut them into pieces that suited their agenda. They did not want a savior. 
that God intends for the world? And why? Why do they reject their Messiah? Well, the passage today clearly tells us it's because they do not look upwards to God. They look sideways to humans. They prefer glory from humans instead of glory from the true God. You see, God is about true purity, and they are not. God is about love, like rejoicing with that paralyzed man, now healed, not condemning him. They reject God because they reject other-centered love, his purity, and upward-gazing love to God first, and an other-centered and other-loving life. They reject true purity, purity from the heart that defines God's way, rather than their man-made, manufactured, false, outward purity, which Jesus calls whitewashed tombs, white marble concealing an inward carcass. Read with me from verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet it is they that witness to me. You refuse to me, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Look, the heart of it is that the Jews did not want God, which is why they did not want Jesus. Or in other words, in John's timeless, evocative, artful words, the light has come into the world, but the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil and his light exposes their darkness. Isn't that something we all relate with? We get defensive when our conscience affirms that there is something wrong we've done. We retreat, we pull up the arguments, pull down the barriers, push people away. And just like that, there is something pure and penetrating and true and light about God's word that the Jews reject. So Moses and all the prophets, the last of whom was John the Baptist, points to Jesus And like Nathaniel, one of the apostles, when Jesus first engages him in chapter 1, verse 45, he says, we have found him, our Christ, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So how does this message today come to become relevant to us? You aren't Jews. I am not a Jew. We did not grow up. Moses' writings, hence we don't have this innate respect for him, nor the prophets. Think about it, your non-Christian friends too. Moses and the prophets would be water off a duck's back to them. There is no respect or relevance. So why should their words bear weight and witness to us? I'll give you two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, it applies to us because it is God speaking through them through his prophets and through his mediator, Moses. 
and God made you. You are made in his image. And so you have a moral sense, a sense of right and wrong, a conscience, which has some sensitivity to truth. And so you know the cutting edge, the sizzle in God's words. His words about purity, which cut into your conscience. Are you obsessed with the world? The very thing that the Sabbath is trying to resist. Are you obsessed with work, deriving your own sense of worth based on a title a boss gives you? The things in the world. How many assemblages of cardboard, plastic, and leather you have? Are your efforts so much about the praise of man rather than praise from God? You know somewhere that loving the world in that way makes you less human. It makes you cheap and plastic like the world. Your conscience affirms this. And you know it because you were made for God. You were made in his image to worship him. Yet we retreat from God and his word because it cuts us like a bleach that is purifying and pure. It burns us as we approach, so we step away. And number two, it really is not an evidence problem. Like so many modern people claim, as a basis, the Dead Sea Scrolls, just to take one example, I mean, this really is a horse beaten dead, a lemon squeezed dry. I, I feel bored just raising this, honestly. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered a few decades ago in the Qumran caves, and they are copies of the Old Testament, including Isaiah, verified by science and modern methods to be written before Christ. Uh, 200 BC, and you see those very words, the one crying out in the wilderness to come. To a point two, in Isaiah 53, seven, the lamb to be led to the slaughter. It is so clear, it is so hard to refute, yet we retreat from God's word because it is pure. So it is not a relevance problem. You know the sting in God's word, and it's not an evidence problem. Like today's passage, and this is the main point, God shows us, Jesus tells us, that when people reject God's word, it's a heart problem. It's not a relevance problem, it's a heart problem. It's because humans do not want to look up to God, but they want to look sideways to other humans for glory, praise from each other. Look how good and pure I am, manufactured worth rather than worth from God. It's because God's way of self-giving love and purity is so hard to us. It is so contrary to the grain of our hearts. We don't, we don't want to live for God or others. And God's word rightly condemns us, just as it condemned the Jews in Jesus' day. Yet let us look at verse 34 to conclude. Uh, look with me at verse 34, especially the second part. Why is Jesus bringing up Moses, John the Baptist, his own miracles? Does he need people around him to affirm him? Is he being defensive for his own sake? No, he's saying it for their sake. He's saying it for your sake and my sake. Verse 34, I say these things so you may be saved. So today, hear the words of God in the words of John the Baptist and Moses, 
that God is about true purity. He's come to restore the world in his son. And so listen to the words of his son. Listen to his message about saving the world. Jesus came into the world, sent by God to save you and to save me. And this is a message relevant for all people and for all time. <clears throat> and just to cap off with a short, hopefully penetrating uh, application for us Christians, let's just really get the point. It's really not about uh, getting praise from each other. Even in ministry, even as you serve at church, it's about honoring Christ. I hope we really get that. And on that note, I will conclude. So please join me as I pray. Father, thank you for your son.